This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington. And this week on Face the Nation, the critical standoff between the U.S. and Iran de-escalates. But the conflict takes a tragic turn. And now there's a new crisis as Iran admits to erroneously shooting down a passenger aircraft, killing 176. We'll have the latest. And here in the U.S., some in Congress are demanding answers as to why the administration continues to send mixed messages about the, quote, imminent threat used to justify the strike in the first place. On Saturday, the Iranian government acknowledged what they've been denying for days, that following retaliatory missile strikes on U.S. installations in Iraq, they'd unintentionally shot down a Ukrainian passenger jet, mistaking it for an incoming missile. A high-ranking Iranian official was quick to point to U.S. provocation as partially to blame. Now, Iranians are angry with their own government and the U.S., as Washington and Baghdad remain at an impasse over the role of U.S. forces in Iraq, we'll talk to Secretary of Defense Mark Esper. We did it because they were looking to blow up our embassy. We'll also ask him about the intelligence behind the killing of Soleimani. The administration's handling of the crisis is causing frustration even among some Republicans loyal to the president. Now, I find this insulting and demeaning. Republican Mike Lee, Democrats Tim Kaine and Adam Schiff will all be here. Plus, former Secretary of State John Kerry weighs in on Iran and why he's supporting Joe Biden. And a special behind-the-scenes report from our Liz Palmer. She and her team spent a tumultuous week in Iran. All that and more is just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We begin this morning with the Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper. Good morning to you, Mr. Secretary. Good to have you here. Good morning, Margaret. Thank you for having me. Um, our team in Tehran witnessed anti-government protests, chants against the regime. What is the U.S. assessment of what's happening on the ground? We are safer today than we were just a few weeks ago. Why? Because we took out the world's foremost terrorist leader, Qassam Soleimani, who had the blood of hundreds of American dead service members on his hands. Secondly, we restored deterrence with Iran without any United States casualties. And third, we reassured our partners and allies in the region that we will stand up and defend our interests. I think uh, when you in look terms at... In of restoring deterrence, there was a, a 
Iran fired off missiles at the United we, we States. We are confident bases, we restore so deterrence. And if you look to your you question... You don't expect any further attacks on U.S. We do not presence. expect any further attacks. But if you look at what's happening on the ground today, you have just yesterday in Tehran and other cities, Iranians chanting, death to the Ayatollah. We don't, we don't think America is, is our enemy. You can see the, the Iranian people are standing up and asserting their rights, their aspirations for a better government, a different, a different regime. So what is the assessment, though, of what level of threat there is to the regime's hold on power? Because the president was tweeting yesterday in Farsi messages that he stands with the protesters and he's following closely what's happening. Well, we do stand with the Iranian people. They want the same things that most people around the world want. They want prosperity. They want the ability to, to live their lives, to raise their children. And uh, we do support those same aspirations for people wherever they are. I just think you see a very corrupt regime that the Iranian people are finally standing up and trying to hold them accountable. So is there still an offer to negotiate with that regime you call corrupt? Because by saying you stand with the protesters, it seems to be in contradiction to an offer to negotiate with the government they're protesting against. Well, it is still the legitimate government, if you will, of Iran. And what we've said, I've said publicly, the president certainly has said, is we will meet with them. We're willing to sit down and discuss without precondition a new way forward, a, a, a series of steps by which Iran becomes a more normal country. That st offer still stands. That offer still stands. And if something happens to these protesters in the street, I mean, is there a line that the president won't meet with Iran? Uh, the president has drawn no preconditions other than to say we're willing to meet with the Iranian government. Okay. I want to ask you about the downing of this Ukrainian mm -hmm. commercial airliner. Uh, the Iranian foreign minister tweeted, admitted it was a mistake on their behalf, but also said essentially the U.S. contributed because of the escalation. What's your response to that? Well, first of all, it's a terrible tragedy. 176 people from many nations killed. It's a shame that the first reaction of the Iranian government to show their corruption wanted to say that it was American propaganda, when clearly it was just a horrible mistake. To somehow allow Iran to play the victim card with the international community is just ridiculous. These tensions started many years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, and escalated in the past 12 months, led by the terrorist leader, Qassam Soleimani, who was escalating attacks against United States forces in the region, in Baghdad in particular, which ultimately led to the siege of the United States Embassy there. I want to ask you about that uh, attempt to reach the perimeter and the embassy, but also broadly the threat that the U.S. was tracking that has been described as imminent time and again by the administration. The president said last week that there was an attempt to blow up the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. Here's specifically what he said on Fox News. I can reveal that I believe it would have been four embassies, but Baghdad certainly would have been the lead, but I think it would have been four embassies, could have been military bases, could have been a lot of other things, too. But it was imminent, and then all of a sudden, he was gone. Why couldn't you share that specific threat with senators in a classified briefing? Well, uh, that information, there was a reference in this, in this exquisite intelligence to an attack on the United States Embassy in Baghdad. That information was shared with the Gang of Eight. All that exceptional intelligence shared with the Gang of Eight, not the broader membership of the Congress. A specific threat against the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad well, to blow it up I was, shared with the Gang of Eight? I was not in that meeting with the Gang of Eight. But I will tell you, I spoke to one of the briefers. What the briefer said to me coming out of that meeting was his assessment that most, if not all, the members thought that the intelligence was persuasive and that, they, and that the Gang of Eight did not think that it should be released to the broader members of Congress. Well, broadly, can you clarify, though, was the specific threat that the president shared with Fox News about four U.S. embassies being under threat, 
also shared with Congress? Why was well, there a difference? what the president said was he believed that it probably and could have been a tax against additional embassies. I shared that view. I know other members of the national security team shared that view. That's why I deployed thousands of American paratroopers to the Middle East to reinforce our embassy in Baghdad and other sites throughout the region. Probably and could have been. That mm -hmm. is, that sounds more like an assessment than a specific, tangible threat with a, a decisive piece of intelligence. Well, the president didn't say there was a tangible... Uh, he didn't cite a specific piece of evidence. What he said is he probably, he believed... Are you saying there wasn't been. one? I didn't see one with regard to four embassies. What I'm saying is I share the president's view that probably my expectation was they were going to go after our embassies. The embassies are the most prominent display of American presence in a country. The description had been that this was an imminent threat to U.S. personnel and facilities mm -hmm. in the region. Is that a more accurate description than what the president provided? Well, what I've said publicly, I've, I've said many times, is that we had information that there was going to be attack within a matter of days that would be broad in scale, in other words, more than one country, and that it would be bigger than previous attacks, likely going to take us into open hostilities with Iran. Is that threat uh, gone? That was orchestrated by Qassam, Qassam Soleimani. He was the one who has led the attacks against America for 20 years now. Mm -hmm. So we had every expectation to believe that this would happen. In fact, a very, very senior person from the intelligence community said, the risk of inaction is greater than the risk of action. That was compelling for me. Is that threat gone? That threat has been disrupted. I think what we have to find out now is continue to work to make sure that that threat is completely eliminated. Do you understand the frustration and anger from members of Congress who say, why, the pre why can the president tell Fox News something he can't tell members of Congress or, or members of his administration can't explicitly explain to members of Congress? Well, look, I understand the frustration. The fact is that evidence, uh, that information is only available to the Gang of Eight. That's been practice and policy for decades. But you said you don't know that it was told to the Gang of Eight. Well, I'm talking about the intelligence stream, the exquisite intelligence. That was told, uh, that information of that source and method was revealed to the Gang of Eight. I understand the frustration of the broader members of Congress. They're not going to have access to that information. I would support it if we, if we didn't jeopardize the sources and methods, and I think the president said the same. Uh, Senator Mike Lee, who will be with us on this program, mm -hmm. um, also was frustrated with your briefing. Uh, and he said, you know, why did you tell members of Congress that it would essentially be a negative message to try to uh, call into question the, the authorization for military force in Iraq? Why well, no, did you oppose that debate? Well, first of all, for every member that didn't like the brief, there's members that thought it was the greatest brief ever. Uh, that was never said that they should not have a debate, that they should have a discussion. I was asked a specific question about do I have concerns about a debate. And what all I said was this, is as that debate continues, don't not have a debate, but as that debate ensues, be conscious of the messaging, particularly to our troops, because they are looking for messages. Do they have the support of the American people while they are in harm's way? Why do I say that? My predecessors have said that in the past, and I had the personal experience. In the 1991 Gulf War, I was on the ground preparing for our final actions to go into Iraq. Mm -hmm. And we watched very carefully the debate in Congress in mid-January of that year, to find out, did we have the support of the right. American people and our lawmakers? Uh, quickly, are other Iranian leaders still potential targets? Because we have reported that there was an IRGC leader in Yemen targeted the very same day Qasem Soleimani was killed. Look, I'm not going to speak to any uh, planned or alleged operations. Uh, we will exercise everything we need to do to protect the American people, to protect our forces, to protect our embassies. But you're not denying that? Report. I'm not going to speak to any, any reports. Okay. Um, I want to quickly ask you as well about the presence in Iraq. 
uh, will the U.S. cut off U.S. aid if the Iraqi government tries to expel U.S. troops? Well, let's take this one step at a time. We're not there yet. What we need to do is sit down and have discussions uh, with Iraq. Uh, we're doing that now. I want to, uh, we also intend to do that with our NATO partners. I had a good conversation the other day with the NATO Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg. We're going to send a team over to discuss how can NATO play a bigger role in the Iraq mission. Two important missions there. One is to train, advise, and assist the Iraqi uh, uh, military. And number two is the enduring defeat of ISIS. We are committed to both those operations, and I think that uh, we can work out a better way forward. Does plussing up a NATO presence mean drawing down the 5,000 U.S. troops? Well, it could. It's been my aspiration for some time to have a smaller footprint in Iraq and in the broader Middle mind? East. No, I, I think that's, that's a matter for commanders on the ground to assess. We have to look at what are the capabilities that our NATO partners can bring to the Bring to the bring to the fore, and uh, I think that has to be a process in full respect of, uh, of of Iraq's sovereignty. At the end of the day, the United States government wants what the Iraqi people want, and that is a strong, prosperous, and independent Iraq. On Saudi Arabia, uh, we are reporting. CBS News is reporting that uh, about a dozen or so Saudi service people may be expelled from the United States in the wake of that Pensacola shooting mm -hmm. and uh, an investigation. Is that the right number? What can you tell us about that? And what did the president mean when he said Saudi Arabia deposited a billion dollars into a bank account in exchange for U.S. troop deployment? Well, two separate things. You know, first of all, the, uh, what you're referring to is an investigation being conducted by the DOJ and the uh, FBI in the wake of the, that tragic uh, shooting in Pensacola some few weeks ago. In the wake of that, uh, the department has taken a number of steps to, to ensure it doesn't happen again. I've signed out directives that address uh, enhanced screening of all of our foreign students that address... Uh, credentialing going forward, weapons policies, etc. So we're doing everything we can. The investigation is being conducted by DOJ and FBI. I'm sure they will release something on that in the coming days. And the billion dollars into the U.S. bank account? Well, what the president is referring to is burden sharing. And burden sharing comes in many forms. When we talk to NATO, we talk about contributing more to uh, their uh, GDP to defense commitment. And the president's actions have resulted in hundreds of billions of dollars more being contributed by our NATO allies. It but includes, that's not a transaction like what he well, described. Well, it includes host nation support. It includes foreign military cells. It includes providing troops on the ground. And in cases, it provides uh, helping to offset some of our operations and maintenance costs, which the Saudis are committed to doing, just as they did offset costs during the 1990 and 91 Gulf War. Secretary. Burden sharing. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Margaret. And we'll be back in a moment with the House Intelligence Committee Chairman, Adam Schiff. Stay with us. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy, the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. C4 Smart Energy. Stay focused. We're joined now by the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff. Good morning to you, Mr. Chairman. Good morning. Um, you are part of the Gang of Eight, so you're part of that group that received the very classified briefing that the defense secretary was referring to. He said the intelligence was exquisite and it was incredibly detailed. Do you quibble with his characterization of what you were told? 
I don't quibble with it. I think it's just plain wrong. Um, there was no discussion in the Gang of Eight briefings that these are the four embassies that are being targeted, and we have exquisite intelligence that shows these are the specific targets. What about U.S. Embassy it, Baghdad? He it, said that was specifically Well, referenced. I don't recall, frankly, in that briefing there being a specific discussion about bombing the U.S. Embassy uh, in Baghdad. The brief was much more along the lines, frankly, of something that Secretary Pompeo uh, admitted the other day when he said that we don't know precisely where and we don't know precisely when. That was much more the nature of the briefing that we got. Uh, in the view of the briefers, there was plotting. There was a, an effort to um, escalate uh, being planned, but they didn't have specificity. Uh, and so when you hear the president out there on Fox he is fudging the intelligence. And when you hear the secretary say, well, that wasn't what the intelligence said, but that's my personal belief, he is fudging. When Secretary Pompeo was on your show last week uh, and made the claim that the intelligence analysis was that taking Soleimani out uh, would improve our security and, not, and leaving him in would make us less safe, that is also fudging. That's not an intelligence conclusion. That is Pompeo's personal opinion. Is that a polite way of saying they're lying? Well, uh, I, you know, you can certainly put it that way, but I, frankly, I think what they're doing is they are overstating and exaggerating what the intelligence shows. Uh, and when you're talking about justifying acts that might bring us into warfare with Iran, that's a dangerous thing to do. But to be fair, um, because you are the Intel Committee chairman, you know the Intel Committee often, or the, the intelligence community works in assessments, in judgments, in putting together mosaics, pieces of information to come to a conclusion. When Asper is working in beliefs and uh, projections, isn't that just how it works in possibilities and not necessarily always having one conclusive piece of the exact place and time. Well, that's exactly right. But that, that means that you need to be very clear about what you're saying the intelligence shows and what it doesn't. If we were to ask the intelligence agencies, will taking Soleimani out make us safer or less safe, they would say to us, Congressman, that's a policy judgment that the policy need makers need to make. What we can tell you is, if you take him out, here are the likely repercussions. Those repercussions that we were briefed about uh, were far more dangerous to this country than anything that Soleimani was plotting, as far as I can tell. Uh, and so when you're talking about taking out a top government official of another nation, an act that might bring us into outright warfare, mm -hmm. the burden of imminence, of showing imminence with very great specifics, I think is very high. So I just want to button up because uh, the defense secretary also said that in that Gang of Eight briefing, when he said there was sensitive information shared, though he said he wasn't in the room, that it was the Gang of Eight's decision not to share the information with the rest of Congress. He said he'd be okay with it if sensitive bits were taken out. Well, Is this a political decision? He said a couple things. He said that what he was told by the briefers is that most or all of the members were completely satisfied. That's not correct. Uh, I can tell you I wasn't, and there were other members of the Gang of Eight who were equally unsatisfied with the proof of eminence. Uh, in terms of the, what he has described and others have described uh, as the exquisite nature or sources and methods, um, we often don't share the most sensitive sources and methods with all of the members. But that's not an excuse for withholding from the members the underlying facts. And so... If the intelligence showed that there were four embassies being targeted, that should have been shared with the members. It wasn't because I don't believe that is what the intelligence showed. Have you heard from members of the intelligence community that they objected 
to what the administration did? Uh, they're not going to volunteer that. Uh, in other words, the intelligence community doesn't want to get crosswise with the White House. They You've spoken to CIA Director Gina Haspel. Yes. This was, it, it appears, according to Asper's description, also her assessment. Well, uh, I don't know whether uh, Esper has represented that the CIA director supported or didn't support a strike on Soleimani. The job of the CIA director is to say, um, this is what our intelligence shows, this is what our intelligence analysts tell us will be the repercussions if you take uh, Soleimani out. That is the principal role. It's the president's call whether that justifies uh, taking a strike, but that should be done in consultation with Congress and approved by Congress, and neither of those things happened here. Should other IRGC leaders be targeted? Uh, I think that we have escalated enough. Uh, and Even though Iran says it's standing down and the president has used that phrase. Well, I think what we are likely to see, at least in the near term, uh, is the end of Iran's overt attacks, like the missile attack on our bases. I don't think that we conclude, conclude at all that we've seen an end to the, their use of Shia and other proxies. And so the risk to American troops and to American civilians uh, continues, I think, is, is greater now as a result of the administration's actions. Uh, Iran has been uh, humiliated uh, by, uh, by this taking out of their top leadership, but also by their disastrous uh, shootdown of this uh, civilian aircraft. Yeah. That makes them, I think, more... Um, uh, dangerous and provocative uh, in the sense that uh, we may very well see covert retaliation against the United States. Uh, I want to switch gears because in, in your role you are also playing a, a key, um, a key uh, you are a key figure in the impeachment investigation up to this point. I'm wondering if you have a sense about whether you'll be an impeachment manager when this goes to a Senate trial. Well, that'll be the Speaker's decision. I don't want to get ahead Do of her thinking. I've told the speaker that I will uh, play whatever role uh, that she and the caucus believe would be useful. And the speaker uh, was on another network today and seemed to leave open the idea of subpoenaing John Bolton, the former national security advisor to the president. Is that something you would be looking at? Are you looking at? Uh, you know, it's certainly something that we are considering. But look, um, Americans want to see a fair trial in the Senate. They want to see a trial that's fair to the president, and they want to see a trial that's fair to the American people that brings all the facts forward. There, there's little sense in bringing Bolton into the House and not allowing the senators to see his testimony. Um, if they're going to be the triers of fact, and they will be, they should hear from the witness directly. He has offered to come forward and testify. There is no reason not to have him testify unless you just want to cover up the president's wrongdoing. If McConnell succeeds in making this trial a trial without witnesses, it will be the first impeachment trial in history where the subject of the trial didn't resign mid-trial where they didn't have witnesses. Um, that's not a fair trial. That's a sham. That's a cover-up. Uh, and I think one of the things that uh, holding on to the articles has succeeded in doing is yeah. flushing out McConnell and the president's desire to make this a cover-up. Well, we will get to uh, what that trial might look like with Mike Lee, senator from Utah, a Republican ally of the president, who will be with us soon. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. 
Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We're back with Utah Republican Senator Mike Lee. He's written a number of books about the Constitution and our country's founding documents. He joins us this morning from Salt Lake City. Good morning to you, Senator. Good morning. Uh, you heard the Secretary of Defense say that there was a specific threat assessment shared with the Gang of Eight. Um, should that threat stream have been shared with the rest of Congress, people like yourself? Yes, it should have. It's important to remember that the Gang of Eight does not equal Congress. The House of Representatives has 435 members. The Senate has 100 members. Look, I understand Secretary Esper's point. I understand that not every piece of information can or pragmatically should be shared with all 535 members of Congress. But drive-by notification to eight people is not the same as notification to Congress. Remember, there is an important constitutional reason for this. We have uh, some overlap and some natural tension between the Article II uh, commander-in-chief power enjoyed by the president and the Article I, Section 8 war power that is possessed by Congress. In order to know and understand uh, where one power ends and another begins in any context, we need to have a certain amount of information, you, uh, and an adequate amount of information was not shared with us. Well, there was information shared with Fox News in that interview the president gave where he said it was his belief that there were four embassies that were going to be threatened uh, by attack by Iran. You've spoken to the president. Was that television interview the first time you heard it? Uh, Yes, it was. Um, Let me say about the president, I I have great respect for President Trump for how he's handled this situation and how he's handled other situations involving his immense power as commander in chief. I believe more than any other president in my lifetime, President Trump has shown restraint in the way he's exercised that power. Uh, But do you have a problem with learning it on television? Taken us to war several times. Yes, uh, uh, but the problem there is not with the president. The problem is with those who were briefing us. Those who were briefing us, I believe, would have done a different job under the light of day, had television cameras been there, than they did in private, where his boss couldn't see what they were saying. Uh, They were not helpful, and they didn't reflect well on the president's great restraint that he's shown and deference to the American people. Senator, I want to uh, continue this conversation specifically about war powers as well on the other side of this commercial break, so stay with us. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We're back now with more from Republican Senator Mike Lee. Senator, uh, you heard the defense secretary say there was not one definitive specific piece of intelligence that indicated these four embassy attacks were being planned. It was a belief. Does that give you pause? Uh, No, not necessarily. Look, I want to be clear. Within hours after General Soleimani was killed, I made a public statement to the effect that the fact that he is dead is a good thing. It's a positive signal for the safety and security of the American people. And I stand by that. Uh, this is a guy who had done a lot of damage. Um, 
I'm not sure if the center can still hear me. I think we just uh, had an interruption on that feed. So uh, hopefully we'll pick it up. Standing by, though, in Richmond, I'm going live now to Virginia Senator Tim Kaine. Good morning to you, Senator. Good morning, Margaret. Um, and uh, you and Senator Lee have actually found some common cause here, uh, despite the difference in your parties, on a frustration uh, regarding the president's uh, lack of consultation with Congress. And I want to dive into that. Um, but let's start right. off specifically on, on what we learned. Because you are on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which has oversight of the State Department and therefore embassies, um, were you aware that there was any kind of threat specifically to Embassy Baghdad and three other posts, as the president has described? Uh, no, I wasn't, Margaret. I, I was at the classified briefing because I'm both a, an armed services and foreign relations member. That was not told to us in the classified briefing, uh, nor was there a suggestion that multiple embassies were threatened. Um, and I think that was one of the reasons that the senators in the briefing were so unhappy. We felt that the evidence was far short of imminent threat. Uh, we were mad that they were so dismissive of the notion that Congress would have anything to do with questions of war and peace. And we also thought that the administration was very cavalier about the Iraqi reaction, the, the Iraqi resolution of parliament that the U.S. should leave. They were sort of like, oh, that's just the way the Iraqis talk. Mm -hmm. This is a very serious concern, and the administration was downplaying it in a way that I think was very unrealistic. But specifically, the defense secretary said uh, the Gang of Eight was told in specific detail, and they chose not to share it with members of Congress. You are saying that you were never told of a threat to the U.S. Embassy. No, no. And, and as I've talked to the Gang of Eight, Again, this is classified information. I'm not going to put that all on the table, but members of the Gang of Eight on the Senate side were not happy with the degree of uh, this, this question of was there an imminent threat. The administration says there was exquisite and detailed intelligence. That means it was specific. But for it to be to justify the president taking essentially an act of war on Iraqi soil to wipe out uh, an Iranian military leader, it had to not just be a plan but an imminent threat, and that usually means it's more than a plan. There's been some move toward a, making a decision to execute on the plan, and we heard nothing about that in the briefing or in any of the conversations I've had with administration leaders. Why is it not sufficient enough for the administration to say broadly there was a threat to U.S. personnel in the region, as Esper said, within days? Why don't you trust that? Well, look, the b b bottom line is um, the Constitution makes really plain it's, it's Congress that gets to make the decision about whether to go to war. And ultimately, that's a, a judgment about the troops. We don't want to put our troops in harm's way unless there is deliberation in front of the American people about whether it's important. Now, a president can act unilaterally to stop, defend against an ongoing attack or an mm -hmm. imminent threat. But if it's more than that, it's supposed to be for Congress because Congress will have this debate in a way that the American public will be informed of the stakes. And then if we debate and vote at the end of the day, then right. it's fair to ask our men and women in uniform to risk their lives and health. But if we're not willing to do that or if the president tries to rush to war and escalate, uh, then you run the risk of making mistakes that are just so fatal in their consequences you can hardly ever, you know, undo them. The president says he doesn't want to go to war. I want to get to that authorization uh, of use of yep. force. Um, we went back and we looked, and, and the original AUMF from 2001, and then there's one in 02. but in the wake of the al-Qaeda attacks on this country, that was the premise for this authorization Congress gave at the right. time. It has, was then used 
of the past almost 20 years to send troops to Libya, Turkey, Georgia, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Djibouti, Somalia, Kenya, the Philippines, Cuba. There are Democratic presidents. Why hasn't any party made a full-throated effort to get a new authorization for military force? Well, Margaret, as you know, I have been working on this since I came to the Senate, and I have the same concern. When I came to the Senate in 2013, I criticized President Obama for taking us into military action in Libya without congressional authorization, for going on ISIS in Iraq and Syria without congressional authorization. I will say this, when I started on this crusade uh, six, seven years ago, very few people were interested in it. But in the last year, the good news is, finally, uh, members of both parties and in both houses have started to step up and take the congressional responsibility seriously. I do think we have to rewrite and redo the 2001 authorization that authorized us to wage war against non-state terrorist groups right. that are connected to the perpetrators but, but of the 9-11 attack. But what you're proposing now, um, and you here's, have to... Yeah, here's what I'm proposing You're working now. with Senator that, Lee on it, but I just want to point out that there does seem to still be a carve-out for imminent threats. And there how, should be. How so would that Sen not stop Senator, what the president just did? Well, Senator Lee and I are basically trying to restore this to its constitutional place. So we have, an, we have a resolution that would basically say no war against Iran unless Congress specifically votes to authorize it. But we do state, as you point out, the president can defend the nation against an imminent threat. Uh, and that is existing law. That's the constitutional framers clearly understood that. Um, we're skeptical of the evidence that this president has put on the table about imminent threat. And that's why we're challenging the briefers. And that's why we're challenging the president. But at the end of the day, I think this is less about the president than it is about Congress. Congresses of both parties for a very long time mm -hmm. have hidden under their desks rather than have votes about war. Votes about war are tough. I, I've cast two of them in the Foreign Relations Committee. Fundamentally different than any vote you'll ever cast. Yeah. And so many members of Congress, what they want to do is hide under their desk, let the president just do whatever the president wants, and then they think they can escape accountability for the consequences of war. It's yeah. time to go back to what the framers envisioned. We shouldn't send our best and brightest into harm's way if Congress doesn't have the guts to, to have a debate and have a vote. All right. Senator Kane, thank you for laying out your case. You, you were persuasive enough to get uh, Senator Mike Lee on board with this, and he joins us now. Senator, thanks for sticking with us. I know we had some problems with the uplink there, but we can see and hear you now just fine. Uh, what Senator Kane essentially said here is no elected official wanted to get their hands dir dirty and go on the record to vote for a war, which is why Congress is allowed uh, for this to continue without a new vote on an AUMF. Can you get other Republicans on board with this beyond yourself and Rand Paul? Yes, we can, and I believe we will. Look, Mike Grievance here is not with the President of the United States. He's exercised his power with great restraint and respect for the Constitution. It's not even really uh, as much with the briefers, even though I didn't love the briefing the other day, as it is with Congress. Congress is the problem. We have to remember that this isn't just about this president or this war. This is about the future question of what any president can do to get us into any war. Over many decades, uh, uh, Congresses and White Houses of every conceivable partisan combination have led us down this path where it's very easy for members of Congress to wash their hands of it, to right. step away and say this isn't our problem. You spoke to the president. Um, have you received any private assurance that Congress would be consulted if he plans to take future military action against Iran? 
Yes, and it's always implicit that we will be consulted. I always want to make sure that any step that is taken is either authorized by one of the AUMFs in question, O2 or O1, or that there is some indication that the strike in question is necessary in order to repel an imminent or actual attack on the United States. That's always the question, and that's one of the reasons why I'm co-sponsoring Tim, Tim Kaine's resolution is to mm-hmm. make clear that neither the O-1 nor the O-2 authorization can be read fairly to authorize a war against Iran. But this was, that there are things short of war. There are, is hostile activity. There is, uh, you know, a targeted strike like this. Um, and in what you are supporting here, this resolution, there is still a carve-out for an imminent threat. So how would that stop the administration from doing again what it just did? Well, anytime we have something like this and we've signaled in advance that it's not covered by an existing AUMF, then, yeah, we're we're relying on the good faith use of the commander-in-chief power by the president. This is not a new president. It's it's not contingent on or or, uh, rooted in in this presidential administration. This goes back to 1791 when George Washington pointed out that it's okay for the president to act in order to repel an actual or imminent attack without authorization from Congress. But he also noted that it's important that any sustained military effort does have to be authorized. Senator Lee, thank you for joining us. Next time, I hope you're here sitting across from me so we can see and hear each other more clearly next time. Uh, We'll be back in a moment with former Secretary of State John Kerry. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. We go now to Duke, Iowa and the presidential campaign trail, where former Secretary of State John Kerry is on a campaign bus trip with former Vice President Joe Biden. And you can hear that bus generator going in the background. Good morning to you, Mr. Secretary. Sorry about that. (laughs) Good morning, Margaret. Good to be with you. Uh, I I want to pick up kind of where we just left off uh, with with the two senators. Um, You know, you've been touting uh, Joe Biden's foreign policy experience as a reason voters should consider voting for him. Uh, Bernie Sanders, his opponent, has has taken that on as a reason essentially not to specifically focusing in on uh, Biden's vote to help authorize the, the war in Iraq. He called it appalling that after 18 years... Joe Biden still refuses to admit he was dead wrong in the Iraq war, the worst foreign policy blunder in modern American history. Given what you know about the region and how Iran was essentially empowered by that, why, why doesn't he just call it a mistake? Well, I think, uh, I, I, in fact, uh, Margaret, I think that uh, Bernie regrettably is distorting Joe's record in the following sense. I mean, he doesn't have what Joe Biden has, which is eight years of sitting on the National Security Council and demonstrating his judgment, whether it was on his leadership dealing with the migration that was flowing across our border and helping to resolve that with the presidents of those countries, or um, his uh, work pulling troops out of Iraq and 
negotiating that and working as perhaps the lead point man on that effort. I, I think that, that uh, I know very well what Joe's position was because I answered those questions back in 2002, 2000, uh, 2003 and 4, um, and it was very clear that uh, what we were doing was listening to a president who made a pledge that he was going to do diplomacy, that he was going to exhaust diplomacy, build a coalition. And ultimately, we learned, as Joe did and I did, that the intelligence was distorted. So Joe spoke out and criticized. Joe was against what they were doing. The vote was not a vote specifically to go to war. It was a vote for the president to have leverage uh, with respect to getting Saddam Hussein back to the negotiating table, back to the inspections, excuse me. And uh, uh, I think we were let down, and Joe has said many times that it was a mistake, obviously, to trust the words of, uh, of the administration who, who didn't follow through on what they said they were going to do. And I invite you to go back, read my speech on the floor and others, where right. I said this is not a vote specifically to let the president go to war. So I think Bernie is trying to drive a wedge in there. I understand that. Uh, but I think uh, the vice president has unparalleled, demonstrated accomplishment and success in foreign policy as chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee and as vice president. And he, in my judgment, uh, is the one person running for president yeah. who, the moment he takes office, has the ability to be able to address a lot of questions, including the credibility of the United States. Joe well, has told the truth. People know that. And I think they will trust uh, in his capacity to lead the country at a very, very delicate time well, when foreign policy experience it is. is, in fact, a premium. Well, it is. And Iran, an issue you know well, is front and center right now. But virtually every single Democrat running for office right now is claiming the same or virtually the same Iran policy, which is to try to revive the deal that you negotiated. Uh, there's, some would say, a shell of it left now. Shouldn't voters expect more out of a Iran strategy from someone trying to be commander-in-chief? Well, Joe Biden is, in fact, providing more, which is uh, to recognize that, that it's not enough just to go back to where we were, uh, because obviously circumstances have changed and things have evolved in the last three and a half years. And, and what, uh, what uh, Vice President Biden knows we have to do is make sure now that all the things that we were going to do in the follow-on agreement, which was always contemplated. Margaret, you were there. You're an expert at this. You know exactly what the truth is about it. We were trying to take the nuclear weapon off the table first and then negotiate Yemen, Hezbollah, threats against Israel, uh, mm -hmm. the regional question of trafficking of arms. And, and so Vice President Biden understands that now has to also be front and center uh, as, you, as you revive the agreement. But the truth is France, Germany, right. Britain, China, Russia are all still trying to keep the agreement in place because they recognize it's the strongest, most transparent, most accountable nuclear agreement on the planet. Well, and it did take a nuclear weapon off the table until President Trump decided unilaterally to ignore all of our allies and move uh, to get out of the agreement. Well, the president's going on the, the attack on that deal this morning, specifically mentioning you, perhaps not a surprise. Um, but, you know, I, I know the deal you negotiated lifted sanctions uh, 
gave some relief in exchange for capping the nuclear program. There was also a parallel negotiation that released some cash uh, as part of a, a settlement of a different separate dispute. The president this week put blame on the administration, your, the administration you served on with essentially helping to provide money to the IRGC. Uh, I want to play a soundbite of what you said in 2016 to CNBC when you were asked about how Iran would spend the money. I think that some of it will ha end up in the hands of uh, uh, the IRGC or of other entities, some of which are labeled terrorist. Uh, in, it, you know, to some degree, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that every uh, component of that can be prevented, but I can tell you this. Right now, we are not seeing the early delivery of funds going to that kind of endeavor at this point in time. Mm -hmm. I'm sure at some point some of it will. I remember talking to you at the time. Money is fungible. Sure. Why, though, Absolutely. did you Money think is fungible. that that was a risk worth taking if you knew the possibility of, of what would happen with that money? Well, what I was really saying, I think, uh, uh, First of all, Margaret, you are an expert at this. You were there. You know that the president's tweet is a lie. And the president tweeted this morning because I am coming on the show and he knew you'd ask me the question or he'd push you in a place where you did ask the question. You and the media, I think, need to call a lie a lie. You know Mr. they Secretary, didn't get $150 billion. I asked you that question in 2015, dollars. too. No, 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 but let me just finish. You know, yes, and I'll, I'll answer that. I was saying clearly some money from the budget of Iran is going to go to the IRGC. It always has. That's no surprise. But the truth is, and, and President Trump, uh, I, I, well, he probably doesn't know this, but the fact is his own Defense Intelligence Agency in 2017 testified to the Congress that very, very little money actually went to the IRGC at all. Most of the money went to the economy of Iran, which is precisely what I said and what we all said. So the IRGC has never had a problem getting money, Margaret. But the fact is, Donald Trump keeps saying they got $150 billion, a lie. He keeps saying that all of that money went to pay for it. It did not. His own defense intelligence agency says most of the money went for the economy of the country. So, you know, we have to mm -hmm. stop dealing uh, with questions on Donald Trump's lies and start dealing with the reality of what is going on. The fact is okay. that, mo that the vast proportion of that money yeah. went to the economy of Iran, and they're always going to be funding the IRGC. There was no question about that. Right. And the IRGC budget has not gone up markedly as a result okay. of what happened with the agreement, period. Mr. Secretary, Stand. thank you for joining us. I want to take a break because we have a report from Iran. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. 
CBS News senior foreign correspondent Elizabeth Palmer has been reporting from Tehran all week. Yesterday, she and her team were unexpectedly asked to leave by the Iranian authorities and have now departed Iran. Before they left, she filed this reporter's notebook. This week ended with the unthinkable. Iran admitted to shooting down a passenger plane, killing everyone on board. But it had begun with the unknowable, what Iran would do to avenge the killing by America of its most revered military hero, Qasem Soleimani. This is not just a mourning procession, it's a political message. In all my years of covering Iran, I have never seen such high-stakes drama. Jawad Zarif, Iran's foreign minister, warned the U.S. revenge was coming. In a clear and proportionate way. When? As we choose. They chose that very night. Iranian missiles fell on two U.S. bases in Iraq. A rocket attack was launched against the al-Assad air base. The world held its breath. The fact that we have this great military and equipment, however, does not mean we have to use it. We do not want to use it. But with no casualties, America held its fire. And the two old enemies appeared to call it a draw. Ordinary Tehranis heading out in the first real snowfall of the season called it a relief. Were you relieved when he said there would not be another American attack? Yes. I sleep very <laughs> well. Very well. <laughs> but another bombshell was about to burst. CBS News has learned that U.S. officials are confident that Iran shot down a Ukrainian jetliner. On Wednesday morning, wreckage and bodies from Ukrainian Airlines Flight 752 lay strewn across Iran's western suburbs. By Friday, when we managed to reach the site, there was little left, even for the scavengers. Local people say that yesterday, Thursday, around lunchtime, trucks, cranes showed up and took most of the pieces that were here away. Amid rumors of a cover-up, world leaders called for an international investigation. And the victims' families prayed for answers to soothe the grief. The answer came suddenly in a stunning TV address that said Iran's army had shot down the plane by mistake. It was a huge admission for this proud and prickly country, which may have appeased critics outside Iran, but it's inflamed them at home. Protests erupted in Tehran last night, crowds of students who despise the government for its corruption and ineptitude. Iran starts next week, not only in conflict with the U.S., but also with itself. Elizabeth Palmer reporting from Tehran. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, former Secretary of State John Kerry, Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff, Republican Senator Mike Lee, and Democratic Senator Tim Kaine. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now. 
by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.